The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. The rarest form of murder is serial. Despite what we see on CSI or Mindhunter or in the films and procedurals that dominate popular culture, people who kill randomly and for no reason are extremely uncommon. It's why they loom so large in our collective mindscape. It's also why many of us think we know of every such American killer, but the suspect of this book was unlike anything the FBI had ever encountered. He was a new kind of monster, largely responsible for the greatest string of unsolved disappearances and murders in modern American history, and you probably have never heard of him. Maureen Callahan, author of American Predator. I am back, murder bookies. So did you miss me as much as I've missed you? (laughs) It's the three R's, recovered, renewed, and recharged. I am your host, Jill, and I am back with a new episode, number 46, Killer Thaw, an American Predator by Maureen Callahan. I took a little time off to regroup, so I guess that's now four R's, but it was a good break and I feel so much less stressed. If you didn't hear, I did one of your requests while I was resting up. Merch. My merch store is open on Spreadshop.com, and I have a link on my blog, www.MurderShelfBookClub.com. You can find it also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have fun getting your t-shirts, hoodies, water bottles, whatever you want, and I greatly appreciate your support for me and the podcast. And a shout out to my Vietnamese murder bookies. I see you as you hear me. Thank you so much. Since American Predator was set in Anchorage, Alaska, the snack I'm bringing to book club today is shrimp toast. Right, this is an amazing recipe that was posted by delightfulplate.com. Slice a robustly crusted bread long ways. Chop the shrimp into little pieces. You can use those little tiny ones in the can too. Then mix with the ingredients, mayonnaise, butter, scallion, garlic. And you can use Old Bay, onion powder, or cayenne pepper if you want. You bake for 15 minutes, sprinkle with fresh basil, and I added Parmesan cheese. Bake 15 minutes. Done. Delish. Now, to quench your thirst, I am pairing the shrimp toast with Scott Kelly Oregon Pinay Gris 2021 from NakedWines.com, running about $16 at the subscription price. Normally, it's about $22. I went with the Pinot Gris, which is more of a blush than a white, because it's really crispy, has a refreshing flavor of pear, melon, with just a hint of apple. It is a very versatile wine, so it's not only perfect with the shrimp, but it's recommended for crab, bruschetta, a robust green salad with grilled chicken, 
or maybe Oregon rockfish tacos. And since this book takes us to Washington, Oregon too, it was the right wine for our book club. So appetizer, drink, let's get into the long-awaited book. Author of American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century, Maureen Callahan, is an award-winning investigative journalist and columnist who earned her BA from the New York City School of Visual Arts, then went on to become an editor and writer at Spin, New York Magazine, Vanity Fair, and now the New York Post, where she's a critic at large. In 2016, she was named Humanitarian of the Year by the American Humane Society for reporting on retired military working dogs and the veterans who are wrongly separated from them. So if you haven't seen the movie Megan Levy, you need to. Published in 2019, American Predator comes in at a densely packed, nightmarish 304 pages. Once again, I highly recommend you read the book, a gripping masterpiece, a staple in the true crime book genre. Can't find time to read? Well, you've got me whenever you need me. And now, the mind-blowing story. Alaskan snowdrifts obscure travel along the four-lane road as Samantha Coney worked the night shift at a popular coffee kiosk, Common Grounds. On February 2nd, 2019, the morning barista arrived and knew something was off. Samantha, a responsible 18-year-old young woman, had not closed up properly the night before. The Anchorage Police Department were called, arriving to see no signs of a struggle. Police speculated she might have gone off on her own. With only her dad, James Koenig, and boyfriend Dwayne in her life, the high school senior got along with everyone. Had she been kidnapped? It was highly unlikely, as stranger abductions are so rare, and Samantha hadn't pushed the panic button inside the kiosk. There were zero leads when 35-year-old detective Monique Mickey Dahl was tasked with this investigation, characterized as, quote, suspicious circumstances, end quote. Married to a fellow officer, third-generation Anchorage PD Mickey Dahl spent 10 years in narcotics and undercover with the DEA until this day, her very first day in homicide. Dahl learned Samantha had sent texts indicating a fight with her boyfriend, Dwayne. Samantha had also texted her dad asking for him to bring dinner to her at the coffee bar. Across town, FBI Special Agent Steve Payne received a heads-up phone call, which was common practice in a big city of Anchorage that ran like a small town. A theory emerged that Samantha had stolen the earnings of the day to fund a day or two on her own. Payne was keeping an open mind, rule number one in any investigation. Planning to disappear took a long-range strategy. Samantha had few funds given her modest salary. Where would a teenager go by herself on a dark, cold night in the snow? She didn't have her pickup truck. Dwayne did. And the Anchorage is not a walkable city. Samantha wandering off alone on foot was just ridiculous. And texts did indicate she'd gone to a friend's house, but clearly she hadn't or she'd already been found. Now, police hadn't taped off the kiosk that morning, so the coffee bar went on serving customers. If this was a crime scene, it was now contaminated. Steve Payne knew that these first few hours set the tone for the days and the weeks that could follow. 
He was also aware that 91% of children abducted by a stranger are dead within 24 hours. Time was fleeting. Unlike most, Steve Payne was born in Anchorage with 16 years experience in the FBI working drugs and violent crimes. His devotion was reflected in his personal investigator's mantra, quote, do it right the first time, you only get one chance, end quote. Boy, do I like that. I, I hate doing things twice. Payne understood the law enforcement biases that existed in Alaska concerning the poor and troubled and the lost causes. Steve feared Samantha's case would be dismissed as a troubled teenage girl making drama. Then, Detective Mickey Dahl called him, saying there was new evidence. Meeting, they observed the kiosk's silent surveillance video beginning just before 8 p.m. A relaxed Samantha was at work, lime green top, long brown hair flowing down her back, chatting with a customer through a kiosk window. Then, at two minutes and six seconds in, Samantha abruptly turned off the lights as her hands went up when a possible muzzle of the gun is thrust through the window by a tall person. Dropping to her knees, she remains there fidgeting. Next, she rises and takes the money from the register and hands it to the shadowy figure. A large male leans halfway inside, possibly tying her arms behind her back, and two more minutes pass, which is a long, long time considering that this man with a gun is standing outside a very popular business in the parking lot of a huge gym on well-trafficked Tudor Road. This guy knew what he was doing, thought Payne. Then, the man pounced through the window, quickly landing at Samantha's side. He was very tall compared to Samantha's 5 foot 5 inches, which is 1.7 meters, and confidently he shuts the window. At 8.55 p.m., he turns his back to the camera, revealing very grainy, unreadable white lettering on the back of his black hoodie. He maneuvers Samantha out the door, his arm around her shoulder. All right, so wait, what was that? Immediately, Payne offered his assistance to Doll again, which she declined. It might be her first day, but she was the lead on this, and it was an Anchorage PD case. All right, to me, Dahl's attitude is a speed bump in the parking lot of justice. Take the help from the more experienced when it is offered. It is not about your career. <clears throat> All right, so APA investigator Jeff Bell was assigned to the Koenig case. His 17 years experience with the U.S. Marshals and the FBI Safe Streets Task Force counterbalancing Detective Mickey Dahl's newness to homicide. Bell was baffled by the video like everyone else, and the debate went along these lines. Samantha had put her hands up, but what was really happening? What were they discussing for 10 minutes outside the kiosk and 7 minutes inside, 17 minutes total? The working theory became that Samantha was not a victim and knew this guy. The police would keep it to themselves for now, but that went sideways when Samantha's frantic father took it to the media. 48 hours missing, father, James Koenig, a trucker who knew his way around the seedier side of Anchorage and was rumored to be involved in the drug trade, began moving heaven and earth. James adored his only child, Samantha, who was tough like him. After coping with her mom's drug addiction, she had pushed forward 
and was now in her senior year at Anchorage West High School. A born nurturer, Samantha wanted to work with animals or go into nursing. She sought out the lonely misfits, taking them under her wing. And for all their arguments, she did love Dwayne, who had moved in with her and James eight months earlier. James printed and handed out kidnapped flyers with Samantha's photo on them. Reporters show up with James talking away, saying he'd called her cell phone until the battery died, which convinced him that Samantha had been abducted. James and Dwayne were both interviewed by Dahl separately, which is the way it's supposed to happen. Dahl thought James was a straightforward kind of guy, rating him a 10 for brutal honesty. But his and Dwayne's responses puzzled her. Dwayne was supposed to pick Samantha up at 8.30 that night, but was running late. When he got to the kiosk, the lights were off. Samantha was not inside, and it was messy, not how his neat freak girlfriend would have left it. Question, why didn't he go inside? Quote, I didn't want to trigger an alarm and be accused of breaking in, end quote, said Dwayne. He assumed that Samantha had gotten a ride with someone else and went home. Dahl scrolled through Dwayne's cell phone, seeing their argument texts. Dwayne explained he'd been flirting with other girls, but they were over that, insisting everything was fine. Dahl read the last text message to Dwayne, quote, F you, asshole. I know what you did, and I'm going to spend a couple days with friends. Need time to think, plan. Acting weird, let my dad know, end quote. Dwayne said he went home to wait with James, hoping Samantha would appear. But then he said the weirdest thing happened. About 3 a.m., Dwayne suddenly, quote, felt the need to open the front door and go outside, end quote. Trusting his gut, Dwayne told Dahl he saw a man with a mask six feet away going through Samantha's pickup truck. Eyeballing each other, the man shut the door and walked away. Hmm. Dwayne went back in and told James. About an hour later, Dwayne searched the truck, realizing Samantha's driver's license, which was kept tucked under the visor, was missing. Then Dwayne went back inside and went to sleep and got up around 9.30. I was godsmacked reading this. You know, I have to remind myself that Dwayne isn't a murder bookie. Like me, Dahl was incredulous. Samantha was missing for seven hours. A strange masked man shows up. And no one calls the police. Why hadn't they called the police? Dwayne gave the same answer James did. They didn't think the police would do anything until Samantha was missing 24 hours. All right, that's just not true in most places these days, guys. So please call immediately. Time is of the essence. Unannounced, Detective Dahl sent two officers to James and Dwayne's, wanting to see how they'd react. James wouldn't let them in, wedging himself in the doorframe and then standing outside. And Dwayne did the same thing, raising suspicions even more. 24-7 surveillance began on James Koenig. Had James done this? Every investigator believed that he loved his daughter. So why the odd behavior? James wasn't stupid either. He knew he was the prime suspect and that he had to push the department to look elsewhere. A candlelight vigil was held in Town Square Park with everyone wearing photo buttons of Samantha, heartbreaking and hopeful, both. Fact was, in the first three days, James Koenig had done more than the entire Anchorage PD or FBI 
setting up a tip line and a volunteer site next to Common Grounds. He commissioned a huge billboard with Samantha's face five feet high with kidnapped written above her head. He asked cross-country skiers to search for his daughter. The national media picked up the story. Payne was frustrated as he checked airlines, cruise ships, finding nothing. If Samantha hadn't been abducted with her photo all over Anchorage, why was she not found? Complicating matters, Payne disliked Dahl, the overconfident rookie, while she resented Payne for bigfooting her first big missing persons case. Good grief, it isn't about you. Oh, can we adult here? Can we please adult? When the search of Dwayne's truck turned up nothing, another theory emerged that Samantha had staged her own abduction and the man in the video was her accomplice. Meanwhile, the community was tense and extremely fearful. James's reward for Samantha's return rose to $60,000 as his Facebook account generated leads. With only 350 police officers, after two weeks, the Anchorage PD were burning out. February 24th, 2012, three weeks in, 7.56 p.m., Dwayne got a text from Samantha's phone. Quote, Connor Park sign under the pick of Albert. Ain't she purdy? End quote. Hurrying over, James and Dwayne found tack to a bulletin board under a sign for a missing dog named Albert, a Ziploc bag with a ransom note, and black and white Xeroxed Polaroid photos of Samantha. In one, duct tape covered her mouth and chin. Her hair and makeup had been done, and she was held by a muscular male arm with the Anchorage Daily News dated February 13, 2012, as proof of life. The plain typed paper note referenced Dwayne's ATM card reading, quote, I may not use the card much in AK due to small pop, but as I will be leaving soon, I will be using it all over. She almost did getaway twice, once on Tudor Road and once in the desert. Must be losing my touch, end quote. So, whoa, had this guy done this before? He demanded $30,000. If he got the money, Samantha would be freed in six months. Now an official kidnapping. The full investigative force of the FBI kicked in. Payne's team now included Jolene Grodin, experienced in trafficking, sex crimes, and homicide, and Kat Nelson, who is an expert in digital footprints, cell phone records, and tech. The ransom note was sent for processing at Quantico. You know, was a typewriter actually used for this? Were there fingerprints, fibers, or DNA? Payne called the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit in spite of his skepticism about the profiling psychics. Now, I do believe that their contribution is valuable myself. The photo of Samantha questioned, was she alive? The photos showed no cuts or bruises. She was wearing makeup. Her armpits were shaved, her hair was braided, her skin looked healthy. A muscular male arm was holding up her head, which might be for shock value. In the yes column, Payne, Grodin, and Nelson, Dahl wasn't sure, and Bell thought she was dead. The ransom note was riddled with misspellings. Was this deliberate? Tall guy was no novice. He had some intelligence, but he'd also left the note along a popular hiking trail and only asked for $30,000, and the reward was now up to $70,000. And this detail was not made public. 
the written promise to release Sam after six months. Nothing like this had ever occurred before. Question. Should James put the money into an ATM account? Debate raged. An FBI agent suggested canceling the ATM card and having James text Samantha's cell asking for a face-to-face meeting if Tolman actually wanted the money. Payne near died on the spot. What a horrible idea. Astonished, he listened as the task force discussed how this might actually work. Countering, Payne argued that the ATM card and text was the only link to Samantha, and severing this was insane. Tall guy was no amateur. He had put a lot of distance between himself and the crime. If the money was deposited, he'd take it out. So let's track the ATM card. They came around to this position, except for Doll. She was still stuck on James Koenig. Snafu! James Koenig didn't want to deposit the money. Wait, what? So James thinks that this might be a hoax to con him out of the reward money. That with photos of Samantha included? Doll's suspicions deepened. But then she figured out why James and Dwayne were so secretive when the police came to their home. The men were growing marijuana inside and a whole lot more than just for personal use. Okay. All right, five days later, James deposited $5,000 into Samantha's account, taking the FBI's advice to not put in the whole $30,000 at once. Monitoring ATM activity had begun with someone from Anchorage trying to withdraw $600 cash, 100 over the ATM daily limit. Now, a guy running a cash business like James Koenig might not know about that limit. Godin, Nelson, and even Payne had to concede that Dahl could be right. A second attempt came in Denali, a six-minute drive with $500 successfully drawn. 30 minutes later, another withdrawal. Whoever was using the ATM card knew Anchorage quite well. Then word came. The ATM at Denali had a working camera. At Quantico, a young image video analyst, Chris Iber, who had worked the Boston Marathon bombing, had enough experience to know that only images that were pretty bad to begin with wound up with him. No matter what CSI or Criminal Minds fans think, he couldn't make something out of nothing. 24 hours later, Chris Iber told Payne the suspect had an athletic build, his dark jacket was possibly hooded with some light splattered paint on the left chest. The white lettering on the back, possibly read CORE, C-O-R-P-S. Was tall guy a Marine? And tall guy was wearing clear or light-framed glasses, a gray face mask, gray gloves, and dark pants with light or white shoes. Iber wished he had more. So Iber had worked all night on these images, determined to help find one of the 2,300 people who go missing in the U.S. every day. 2,300 people go missing a day. Three weeks after the disappearance, February 20th, the APA requested surveillance video from Home Depot directly across from the Common Grounds kiosk, and everything changed. 
February 1st, 2012 at 7.45 p.m., a white Chevrolet truck pulled into the Home Depot parking lot and then into the IHOP lot. It had no license plate. Then the driver walked from Tudor Road off-frame. 30 minutes later, he reemerged at the crosswalk, his arm around Samantha's shoulders as other people walked by with no reaction. When the traffic light changed, Samantha bolted, her wrist tied, panicking. Tall guy tackled her, pulling her upright, whispering. They walked over to the white pickup, pausing as some strangers kneeled about the car next to his. In Payne's mind, he willed Samantha to run, scream, thrash. Just do not go with this man. But the whispered words had frozen Samantha in fear, and he put her into the passenger seat, got into the driver's seat, driving away. Frightening fact. We tend to use them interchangeably, but there is a difference between abduction and kidnapping. Abductions are criminal, the leading away of a person from his or her home, loved ones, or other situation by persuasion, fraud, and or violence. Often, an abduction means one parent taking a child from the other parent in a custody dispute. As this is unlawful interference, it is a crime even if a child goes willingly. On the other hand, a kidnapping may have all the elements of abduction, but in no case does the victim leave willingly. Now, there was no doubt that Samantha was in fact kidnapped, forcibly taken away against her will. On my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com, I have some highly recommended links to a few articles and videos with suggestions on what to do if you are assaulted and or kidnapped. While kidnappings are rare in the U.S., Canada, Australia, Western Europe, and suburbanized countries on the Pacific Rim, it is more common in other regions. Come with me, don't make a sound or you'll get hurt. Is literally the signal to scream as loud as you can, draw immediate attention, and fight, fight, fight as if your life depends upon it, because it probably does. Scream, fire, I am being kidnapped, call 911, because random screams tend to be ignored. If you wind up taken to a secondary location, he has you at his mercy, and most times it goes horribly wrong. Make your stand where you are. Do not go. I highly recommend reading the book by Orlando Wilson, Kidnap and Ransom, The Essentials of Kidnapping Prevention. It is short, but 87 pages, but it makes an impact. From the Home Depot video, they learned tall guy drove a white Chevy pickup, only the most popular truck in Alaska. A month later, on March 7th, Another ATM withdrawal occurred all the way down in Wilcox, Arizona. The ransom note had said, quote, I will be leaving soon and I will be using it all over, end quote. Well, that was true. Within the hour, the FBI Phoenix office was on site pulling video and canvassing for hair, fibers, fingerprints, tire tracks. The Arizona video showed a six foot tall man wearing bulky clothing, a hood, sunglasses, and face mask to disguise himself. He wore jeans and white sneakers. Bing! Oh my God! In real time, Samantha's ATM card was being used in Lordsburg, New Mexico. Tall guy was heading east on Highway I-10. 
They speculated he might be in a rental with Payne putting out a bolo, be on the lookout in Los Angeles, San Diego, Phoenix, Albuquerque, and El Paso. At 2.35 a.m., another ping, $80 came out as he neared his $500 a day max. Just keep using that ATM card, tall man. Just keep at it. March 2nd, veteran Texas State Trooper Steve Rayburn was having coffee when he first saw Payne's FBI bolo alert at 6.30 a.m. It read, quote, Suspect will be an unknown male last seen wearing light-colored hooded sweatshirt. Suspect vehicle will be a newer, light-colored passenger car. Suspect is traveling east towards El Paso, end quote. Rayburn, a former Texas Ranger, had been a Lufkin police officer for eight years, so he knew the 600-plus miles of U.S. highways that linked Lufkin and Houston. Around 11 a.m., a new attempt to locate fire was emailed. Quote, suspect used an ATM card twice, in Humble, Texas, and again in Shepherd, Texas. Sending this flyer and recent ATM info to all in-car computers. Ranger Steve Rayburn in Lufkin will be the main ranger assisting the FBI in this matter. End quote. Me? Thought Rayburn. Well, good morning. I'm glad I had that coffee. A nervous Steve Rayburn had never worked with the FBI before. Next, a hazy suspect photo appeared, mask, glasses, and fuzzy. Not helpful, Steve thought. He learned that Chris Iber had been able to see a white Ford Focus at an ATM, only the most commonly rented vehicle in the United States. Rayburn decided to draft his own Ranger flyer, sending a message that this was a top priority. Part of it read, quote, Victim was kidnapped in Alaska, a debit card in the name of Dwayne Tortolani was used in Wilcox, end quote, and it went on to review the card usage in the lower 48 thus far. Rayburn added, quote, officers are asked to bolo for the vehicle with an occupant matching suspect or victim description. Suspect should be in possession of the stolen ATM card, end quote. Rayburn's gut told him the suspect would be heading through Lufkin, Texas, where a lot of highways converged. He personally delivered the printed bulletin to a number of law enforcement agents, which stressed the importance of finding the late model Ford Focus with no decals, body damage, or tinted windows. A seasoned Texas Highway Patrolman, Corporal Brian Henry, looked skeptically over the fuzzy car photos, but drove over to a Ford dealership to compare the cars to the photos. And Chris Iber was spot on correct. It was a Ford Focus. Around 10.30 a.m., FBI agent Deb Ganaway met with Rayburn. As she was getting up to speed, Rayburn's phone rang with Corporal Henry on the line. Henry had been driving around parking lots on the lookout and spied a white Fort Focus at a Quality Inn right off U.S. 59. Ganaway grabbed her jacket as Rayburn called his friend, Mickey Hadnut. Would he send an undercover over? Yes, Hadnut said. He'd do it himself. At the Quality Inn, Ganaway eyeballed the Ford Focus, noting it was a rental with Texas license plates, which was run through the system. With Hadnut and Henry keeping watch, Ganaway and Rayburn went to speak with the manager. Unfortunately, the guest list did nothing to tie anyone to the Ford, as a Holiday Inn and Comfort Suites shared the lot. Then they heard Hadnut on the radio, quote, A white adult male exited room 215. He's placing items in the Ford Focus. He's getting ready to go, end quote. 
Rayburn said urgently, quote, Henry, I need you to sit up on US 59. Once that car leaves, you need to find a reason to pull him over. Don't let go of that car, end quote. Minutes later, Henry saw the Ford Focus turn on to US 59, tailing him from two cars behind. The driver did nothing wrong as he drove through the largely residential area with plenty of traffic lights. The wide open part of the highway loomed ahead with much faster speeds coming. When the light turned green, the Ford Focus accelerated to 57 miles per hour, two over the speed limit, and Henry switched on his lights with the driver calmly pulling over into a parking lot. He was a white man, mid-30s, wearing black sunglasses. Henry said, Texas Highway Patrol, where are you from? The man replied, Alaska. That gave him pause. His driver's license? Israel Keys, born January 7, 1978, from Anchorage. A knife protruded from Israel's belt. Quote, place your knife in your trunk, end quote. He noted wads of cash splattered with red tucked in his passenger door. Hadnut now joined Corporal Henry, with nothing turning up when they ran the license. Israel remarked that he was in town for his sister's wedding in Wells, about 15 minutes from here. What was all this about? Henry replied, quote, we're looking for a kidnapping from Alaska, end quote. Keyes explained, quote, I've been mostly staying in Wells, but I stayed at the Quality Inn last night with my brother. I have two brothers in town for a wedding. They're both from Maine, end quote. Oh, a red flag. The unsolicited details told Henry that this man was lying, as Keyes sweated profusely. How long had he been in Texas? Quote, last Thursday, the same day as the big rain, end quote. Did you fly down or drive, Henry asked next. Now, I think most of us would probably reply, well, I flew, I drove. But Israel responded, quote, the only plane tickets I could get from Anchorage was to Las Vegas. So I flew to Las Vegas and then drove to Texas. I also flew into Vegas so I could take my daughter to see the Grand Canyon. She's 10, end quote. All right, this reminds me of Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer who murdered 40-plus women in Washington state. He'd have a photo of his son in his car, presenting himself as good dad, hoping to put sex workers he was soliciting at ease. Many wound up dead. Rayburn arrived asking questions. Keyes began stretching his limbs, another giveaway that he was lying. Ganaway then joined them, introducing herself. So how many states have you stopped in, she asked. Keyes responded, quote, well, I drove I-40 and then I stopped at the Hoover Dam, but I didn't really stay in any states because I only slept for an hour and a half at night. I drove the rest of the time, end quote. Gee, never stopped for gas, she asked. Quote, oh yeah, of course, a few times, end quote. How'd you pay for it? Keyes paused. Quote, I don't know, probably cash, end quote. Really? I would know if I was using cash or a credit card. And Gannaway did not let it go, quote. Again, how'd you pay for the gas, end quote. Keyes was getting annoyed. Probably cash, he said. Rayburn stepped in, quote, listen, it's easy enough to corroborate your story. Can we search your wallet, end quote. It did not fly. Stone cold response from Keys. Quote, you guys aren't searching anything. Am I under arrest? End quote. 
Up in Anchorage, Steve Payne was exhausted. He picked up his usual skinny mint mocha with whipped cream, noting two baristas working. None were working alone since Samantha was kidnapped. His cell phone rang, and it was Deb Ganaway saying they had a suspect. Payne jolted awake. The guy was Israel Keys from Anchorage, Alaska. She reiterated his story, adding that she'd seen white sneakers under his car seat in the car, plus rolls of double rubber band cash in the passenger door pocket with the red dye, which can be triggered in a bank robbery. Israel was being uncooperative and agitated. What did Payne want to do? The sneakers and cash were not enough probable cause in Alaska. But Deb Ganaway explained that in Texas, if you have reason enough to believe a car was used in the commission of a crime, you can search it. Now, this is a huge decision. It has to be unimpeachable. If later it was determined there wasn't enough probable cause, the evidence became fruit of the poisonous tree, unusable. This is a legal standard that refers to any evidence gathered from just about any kind of police conduct that violates a defendant's constitutional rights. It stems from a 1963 Supreme Court decision, Wong Sun versus the U.S. In Wong Sun, the police introduced drug evidence that they learned about from a witness, whom they learned about from the defendant, during an illegal arrest. The Supreme Court ruled that all the evidence the officers discovered as a result of the illegal arrest was invalid. The statement, witness information, the actual drugs that the witness led them to. So Payne had to absolutely make the right call on this or risk Israel Keys walking. Taking a breath, Payne said, quote, search the car. I don't care how you do it, but search it before we cut this guy loose, end quote. Hanging up, Payne was near tears. The pressure was never as high as it was right now. Was this guy tall now? Ten minutes passed, an eternity. The mint mocha latte was cold. Talking to himself, Payne reviewed what he knew. This should be the guy. An Alaskan all the way down in Texas. Weird story. Can't account for why he took such an odd route to his sister's. Shoes. Red paint splattered on cash. Shifting demeanor. Over-talking. Twenty minutes passed. Payne felt more confident now. He knew in his gut this was the guy. His cell phone rang. We've got him. We've got the guy. Ganaway told him. Payne couldn't believe it, bursting out. What do you have? And she said, quote, enough, end quote. In the search of his car, in the front they found a highlighted map of California, Arizona, and New Mexico, an open can of AMP energy drink, a pair of white sneakers, one ATM receipt that read, debit not available, rolls of cash in denominations of five and ten. In the back seat, a Lufkin Walmart receipt, time tapped 4.10 a.m., March 12, 2012, black sunglasses, a sandwich. In the trunk, they found a green backpack, one gray DVD case with pornographic photos of a black female, porn DVDs, including transgender porn, an Alaskan airline flight confirmation for himself and his daughter, a gray fleece jacket, gray hooded sweatshirt, gray cloth mask, gray gloves in his pocket, a dismantled cell phone, toiletry kit, a handgun, binoculars, a black ski mask, 
and one headlamp. Interesting stuff found in a rental car. In Israel Key's wallet, Rayburn found Samantha Koenig's driver's license. Busted. This was Tall Man. Bell and Dahl found nothing on Keyes in the Alaskan criminal database. Very unusual. His license indicated that he lived on Spur Lane in Anchorage. Could Samantha be alive in this house? They had to get a search warrant ASAP. Kat Nelson found a few clues. Israel Keyes had lived at Fort Lewis, so he likely served in the military. The house he lived in belonged to Kimberly Anderson, a local nurse. She had a Nissan Xterra registered in her name, which had been spotted in some of the ATM withdrawal videos. What was an intelligent, professional woman like Anderson doing with Israel Keys? At the Spur Lane house, law enforcement was taking up positions. There were two sheds off to the right and a trailer alongside a white Chevy pickup truck. Bell's heart sank realizing this truck had been checked out by the APD right after Samantha disappeared and ruled it out. This pickup truck had a lumber rack over the cargo bed. The pickup truck they were looking for did not. Inspecting it again, Bell saw that the lumber rack had been removed and reattached recently. Oh, man. Dahl asked Payne to accompany her and Bell to Texas to interrogate Keys. Mighty decent of her, considering their adversarial relationship. Tempted, Payne wanted to go, but he needed to write out the affidavit, starting with the charge of fraud with an ATM card. It needed to be strong enough to extradite Keys from Texas to Alaska, so he declined. Girlfriend Kimberly Anderson was adamant. Her boyfriend, Israel Keys, had nothing to do with Samantha's disappearance. He was home with her and his daughter the night she vanished. They got up at 5 a.m. the next morning. Israel and his little girl were flying to New Orleans, where they were going on a cruise. They flew out of Anchorage, Anderson meeting up with them a few days later. It was just impossible. Down in Texas, Rayburn and Ganaway found another card in Israel's wallet, a green Visa debit card issued to Dwayne. They moved on to the interview stage. Asked if he knew why he was arrested, Keyes said no. When they said they'd found Dwayne's debit card in his wallet, he replied, quote, I do not want to talk, end quote. Now that isn't, I want a lawyer, so Rayburn continued. The FBI has a photo of your truck at the crime scene. Keyes said, quote, if they had, they already would have talked to me, end quote. And damn it, he was correct, thought Rayburn. The guy's demeanor, smug and condescending. It was time to transport Keyes to a federal prison. When Bell and Dolph saw Keyes for the first time, the hair on the back of their neck stood up. They knew Keyes had done it. Quote, there is nothing I can do to help you, end quote, said Keyes. Could Keyes explain why Dwayne's ATM card was in his wallet? Oh, that's how I'm involved in this, said Keyes. Keyes' story was... Someone left a Ziploc bag on the front seat of his pickup a few weeks ago, containing a cell phone or an ATM card with the PIN number scratched into it. He assumed it was payment from someone who owed him money. Utterly ridiculous, thought Dahl. They knew he had Samantha. Keys insisted he had no idea what they were talking about. And it was on. He continued in this vein for about an hour, leaving Bell and Dahl stymied. 
He said nothing useful and remained confident. They arraigned him on credit card fraud. At the arraignment, Bell spotted an older woman, long white hair, no makeup, wearing a simple homemade cotton dress, possibly Amish. She was Heidi Keyes, Israel Keyes's mother. Bell introduced himself saying, quote, We believe your son knows where a missing 18-year-old girl is, but he won't tell us anything. Can you help us? End quote. Heidi Keyes replied, quote, I can't help you. If God wants that girl to be found, she'll be found. End quote. And walked away, leaving Bell thunderstruck. Wow. During the two weeks it took to extradite Keys from Texas to Alaska, the police learned he ran Keys Construction, where he'd, quote, never had a dissatisfied customer, end quote. Previously, he'd worked for a contractor from Colville, Washington. Colville was a small town, less than 5,000 people. Keys had served in the Army from 1998 to 2000, stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington, Fort Hood, Texas, and deployed to the Sinai, Egypt. Keyes was honorably discharged in 2001, going to live in Naya Bay, Washington, working for the Parks and Recreation Commission for the next six years. Fun fact, Naya Bay is a designated reservation for the Makah tribe with 865 people living there. But Keyes, what is this penchant for living in isolated small rural communities? Hmm. So Agent Deb Ganaway would eventually get Mom Heidi Keys to speak from her Wells, Texas home, which will remind you of Little House on the Prairie. Heidi had had 10 children. The Keys family moved to Texas was fairly recent, four of Israel's sisters relocating from Indianapolis, Indiana, where, to use Heidi's description, two street preachers convinced them to move 900 miles away to join their congregation. In an arranged marriage, her daughter recently married a church member, which was why Israel had come to Texas in March. Had Israel's strange travel itinerary concerned her? No, Heidi said. The wedding came up quickly, and Israel said it was the cheapest route available. What about Israel's trip to Texas back in February, just hours after Samantha had been kidnapped? Heidi recalled the plans for a cruise, and yes, she knew about the meandering route from point A to point B. Heidi confirmed that some weird things had happened during that February visit. A sister begged Israel to come back to God, and instead of the usual contemptuous response, Israel began to cry, saying, quote, You don't know the things that I have done. End quote. Ooh. Also, on February 13th, Israel snuck out of Heidi's home in the wee hours like a teenager. One day before they were due to fly back to Anchorage, leaving a note. Quote, gone to fix the window and find a place to hide my guns, end quote. Window, referring to the rental car. When Danaway asked, well, when did he get back? Heidi said that was the weird thing, is he didn't come back. She shared the family text from that day with Ganaway. Callahan quotes the following. 8.05 a.m. Izzy, we can take your guns too. Redacted if you want. No problem. End quote. The response, silence. 12 hours later, at 8.34 p.m., quote, we want to get you if you have any idea where you are, end quote. No response from Izzy. The next day, February 14th, 
Israel texted that he was parked near a big shopping center in Clyburn. The family drove down to pick him up, but no Izzy. They spent the night sleeping in their van, waiting for his next text. All right, now that's weird, right? Sleeping in your van instead of going home? The morning of the 15th, Israel called and the family found him, disheveled, incoherent, the rental car covered in mud splatter. Excuses rolled from Israel. He ran out of gas. His credit cards were frozen. He had no cash. He hadn't slept or eaten. Now, mom stressed, this is very unlike the Izzy that they knew, who was calm, neat, resourceful, able to build or fix anything. He couldn't get lost in the woods ever, but he'd gotten disoriented driving around suburban Texas in the daylight? Nowhere. February 16th, Heidi booked them tickets to Anchorage. And again, Israel was gone most of the day, returned with $900 to reimburse Heidi, and he and his daughter flew home on the 18th. Heidi conceded that Israel was drinking a lot more and was very emotional. Worried, she'd even had two church elders who were actually younger than Israel come to counsel her son. Weirder, he agreed. All right, everybody agreed that something was way off here. Heidi had actually helped greatly. Ganaway now knew about Israel's regular, unusual travel patterns, the Keys family dynamic, and Israel's mental health unraveling right after Samantha's disappearance, and that even the Keys family saw Israel's behavior was disturbing, with no one saying a thing. But what had Israel done during those two missing days in Texas? March 30th, in Anchorage. Instead of confession, Israel issued demands. One, he wanted the death penalty off the table. Two, he wanted to protect his daughter from negative media coverage. Agent Steve Payne had a few goals for himself. He needed Keyes to believe that the FBI knew more than they did, that his interrogators had heard it all before. If Keyes didn't talk, the charge was credit card fraud. At most, he'd see six months to a year in a federal prison. Samantha's case would go cold, and Keyes would get out to go do it again. Do it right the first time. You only get one chance, he thought. They developed a strategy on how to handle Keyes. No other facility in Anchorage was equipped to deal with such a dangerous suspect, so Bell would run the interrogation at the more intimidating FBI offices. Doden, Nelson would man their computers, debunking and or verifying Keyes' statement in real time. FBI profilers at Quantico would ask questions via text. Their initial advice? Let him keep talking. The smart ones love to talk. They decided that taking the death penalty off the table this early would limit their ability to bargain down the road. They knew Keyes knew where Samantha was. Oh, and Rich Kurtner, one of Alaska's best public defense attorneys, was appointed to represent Israel Keyes. So strategy and script complete. Bell would open, telling Israel they weren't showing all their evidence and they wouldn't bullshit him. Bell would gradually bring out more evidence, such as photos of Key's pickup truck across the street from the coffee kiosk, then masks, sunglasses, and hoodies he'd worn during the ATM withdrawals. Then, if necessary, Dwayne's ATM card and Samantha's cell phone from his truck. No response. Payne would reveal that they knew about ex-girlfriend Tammy, called ex-wife by Israel even though they'd never married, the mother of his daughter. And the final piece would be Israel's computer seized in the search of the house, showing links to news articles about Samantha 
the investigation, and comments posted by a reader named Israel. Reflecting, the strategy was good, and they had a solid chance of unmooring him. Then came the phone call from the top federal prosecutor in Alaska that blew all of this up. Federal prosecutor Kevin Feldes, a white-collar crime guy who graduated from Yale and the University of Chicago Law School, but had never worked on street crime, let alone a kidnapping, possible homicide, was on the phone. He had his own plan for Keyes. Feldes announced that, violating protocol, Keyes would be interrogated by him at the U.S. Attorney's Office, not at the FBI. Problem, the U.S. Attorney's Office wasn't wired for audio and video recording and didn't have the necessary security. Payne was shocked as this could lead to prosecutorial misconduct. While the police and FBI can lie to a suspect, prosecutors cannot. During this kind of negotiation, investigators can offer the possibility of a deal to be validated once they speak to a prosecutor. But this doesn't happen with the prosecutor in the room. All that leverage was lost. And if Keith sensed Feldus was intimidated or nervous, or if Feldus unintentionally leaked how little they knew, it would blow their shot at finding Samantha. This is unbelievable egocentric behavior by Feldus that could undermine the trial. All actions by the prosecution is a matter of public record. Feldus could be prosecutor and a potential defense witness. If any prosecutorial misconduct were discovered, the whole case could be thrown out. The consequences could be devastating. Feldus just wanted in on the biggest case in a decade. Now, his solution was that Bell gave him a crash course on interrogation techniques 101, because, you know, you can pick this up in 10 minutes. Just devastated, Payne and Bell acquiesced, agreeing to prime Feldus as requested. They did have a script prepared, and Payne could redirect the interview if it veered off into the weeds. What could go wrong? Keyes was expressionless, his affect flat. Bell sensed resentment and resignation and timeline creation began. February 1st, 2012, just after 7 p.m., Israel Keys parked at the IHOP adjacent to the Home Depot, deciding to rob the Common Grounds kiosk. The five-foot snowdrifts obscured the sight of the little shack from the road. Waiting until closing time, he took his thermos, zip ties, his 22 Taurus revolver, putting a police scanner in his ear. There was no one else around. Keys asked to see the evidence. Did they have photographs of the raid on his home? Payne braced. Feldus replied, quote, I, I, I do have some. Not a lot of them. Uh, not a lot of them are printed off. End quote. This is not how you confidently leverage a lack of evidence. All right. You say you've got way too many photos to sort through. And no, Israel Keys, you cannot see them because that's really sick. Keyes had them pull up a Google Earth map of Anchorage and zoom into Mantanuska Lake State Park, and then the lake itself. Israel said he'd been ice fishing for about three days in late February, and the police had probably found proof in his shed, and that's where he built his ice shack. Well, why was he mentioning ice fishing and the lake? Feldis really needed to rein this in tightly, but would he? Maureen Callahan writes, quote, there was only one right response here, as Payne and Bell well knew. 
Tell him he doesn't get to know that. The FBI has specialists taking that apart piece by piece. And when they're done, no jury in Alaska will care what Israel Keys has to say. End quote. Well, that's not what Kevin Feldes said. He replied, quote, okay, um, uh, I'm gonna, I don't know what they took out of your shed, Israel. So that's why I'm going to ask about it, because I haven't seen everything they took out of your shed just yet. So, um, end quote. Keys continued, ice fishing day one. He dragged his sled over the icy surface, setting up his fishing shack, cutting an eight by eight hole that he covered with plywood and left. Keys said, quote, I couldn't pull down more than about maybe 150 pounds at the time in the sled. So that's why I had to make three trips. And you're going to need five different bags, end quote. Valdez said, well, okay, can you tell us what you were pulling out in each of those trips? And Keith said, oh, the first day was uh, the head, legs, and arms. Valdez paused. Of Samantha Koenig? Keys, yep. Hope vanished. Keith told them they'd find a ton of evidence in his shed at the house. Wood, knife, blood, adding, quote, the bottom line is the computer. That was the only lake I printed out, and I'm sure if enough time went by, you guys would probably have found her, end quote. <laughs> Not a chance, Payne knew. And growing defiant, Keys filled up the vacuum in the room, quote, everything's in that white shed. You don't need anything out of the back shed, end quote. Feldus wasn't even aware of his loss of power to Keyes, with pain just besides himself. He and Bell tried to shift Keyes back to focusing on the timeline, the facts, the dates, times, location, and Keyes kept talking like in a trance. Israel went to common grounds, assuming a young woman was working there. There was no car, so a boyfriend was probably on the way. 7.55 p.m., Keyes ordered an Americano at the kiosk window. Samantha Koenig was young, small, pretty, and all alone. His plans sped through his mind. As she handed the coffee to him, he pulled his gun, announcing it was a robbery. Samantha put her hands in the air, terrified. He commanded, turn off the light. She did. He told her if she hit the panic button, Keyes would hear it on the police scanner. Give me all the cash. She did. Get down on the floor. Keyes told them he felt invincible because she was so scared and did everything he said, adrenaline rushing. He scanned the parking lot, seeing people coming and going to the gym next door. An idling car finally pulled away. Get down on your knees. Leaning in, he zip-tied her wrists behind her back and leapt inside via the window. Samantha blurted, quote, my dad's coming to get me in half an hour. I mean, he's going to be here any minute, end quote. Keyes wondered which statement was the truth. He asked, quote, did you hit an alarm? I'll know. I have a police scanner in my ear. And if I hear the police being dispatched here, I'll kill you, end quote. Samantha swore she hadn't. In the zone, Israel's tone now deepened. His speech slowed, quote, his voice began to quake. It was the eeriest thing. Keyes sounded both ashamed and enraptured, end quote. And all of this fit with what was seen on the video surveillance. Feldest asked why he was doing this right before he was leaving on a cruise. They would eventually figure out that keeping an impossibly tight timeline was part of Keyes' plan. He couldn't have committed the crime. He was busy. 
As Samantha and Israel walked across Tudor Road, walking through the parking lot, she took the opportunity to bolt. He tackled her, even though there were people everywhere. Wait, was this true? Had IHOP people seen this? Wouldn't a witness have come forward by now? The police did not know these answers because the Anchorage PD never bothered to pull the CCTV surveillance videos from every business near the kiosk. How frustrating. Regaining control, pressing the 22 against her ribs, he whispered, quote, I don't want to hurt you, but this 22 is loaded with very quiet ammo. It will kill you, so don't make me do it, end quote. Samantha froze. People were lingering as they reached his truck with him using Samantha's fear to his advantage. I lost my mind reading this part, Murder Bookies. As I said, never go to a secondary location. It is a death sentence. Grim fact. Statistically, you have a far better chance of survival running away from a thug with a gun than going to an isolated location with him. An overwhelmingly better choice, albeit scary one. Murder Bookie's statement analysis is also important. So think about this when you hear this next part. Keyes tells the team that Samantha, quote, had her hands behind her when I helped her into the truck and I put the seatbelt around her and I told her we were going to drive somewhere, end quote. What is the real context here? Israel is minimizing what he's done. Samantha's having her hands behind her rather than forcibly restraining her. He helped her into the truck rather than pushed. He put a seatbelt around her rather than strapping her down. Going for a drive, not kidnapping her. And Fell dismissed this entirely. Bell and Payne knew from the linguistic cues that he was giving off that they were dealing with a very cunning suspect, a master manipulator. Keys then pulled the napkins out of Samantha's mouth. Oh, so that was why she hadn't screamed. And he said he was holding her for ransom and all she needed to do was follow orders. Quote, I wasn't being mean or anything. I wasn't scaring her at that point. I was trying, you know, to seem like a normal person. End quote. Red Mountain. He knows he's not a normal person. And it means that Israel Keys had done this before. At a red light, a police car pulled next to Samantha's window. Keys had specifically trolled this part of town because there was a festival going on on the other side with most of the cops on duty there. So what were the chances that a cruiser would pull up next to him? He saw Samantha's mind working as she considered her options. Scream, hit the window, but the man would probably shoot her. And the police car windows were up, the radios were making noise, and the kidnapper only wanted money. Maybe she should just cooperate with him. American Predator reads, quote, Keys, too, was assessing his risks. The police scanner told him that these officers weren't looking for a missing teenage girl. If Samantha tried something, and really, he thought at this moment, she should, and the cops pulled him over, well, he had a gun. But if he stayed calm, was able to control Samantha without saying a word, this night would surely go as planned. The light turned green, end quote. He drove to Lynn Airy Park, encountering cross-country skiers. The skiers finally left, 
with Samantha trembling. He asked her if she was cold, and she was. He used several zip ties to secure Samantha's wrists to her seatbelt and had her lie down on the back seat, covering her with drop cloths. It was 11 p.m. by now. At Israel's house, his daughter was asleep, but girlfriend Kimberly was a night owl. Then it dawned on him, quote, I had a lot to do and not very much time to do it, end quote. He needed a burner phone to call in the ransom, so he drove to Walmart, but reconsidered given that Walmart has some of the best surveillance cameras out there. Instead, he decided to retrieve Samantha's cell phone back at the kiosk. He parked it in the deserted Alaska Club gym parking lot. Quote, I was so sure she was going to get away at that point, even though I had her tied up pretty good. I was like, I'm only going to be gone a couple minutes. If I come back and it looks like you've been trying anything, it's not going to be happy. End quote. Years ago at Quantico, Payne heard variations in countless confessions utilizing the you'll regret it, I'll hurt you threat. Neither one is I'll kill you. Neither one. Payne recognized Keyes' threat as the mind control of an experienced criminal. And victims often believe, fatally, that they'll be let go if they do as asked. Keyes retrieved Samantha's cell phone and picked up a few straight zip ties heading home. And then realized Samantha left her car keys back at the kiosk. So Israel went back for the third time, believing it was worth the risk. I was thunderstruck. Oh my God. If the Anchorage PD or FBI had watched the whole kiosk surveillance video, they'd have known without a doubt that Samantha Koenig had been kidnapped that night. What a huge fail. And now Samantha had to use the bathroom. Keys couldn't risk her splattering her DNA all over his truck pulling into the empty earthquake park. He tied her up and led her to a grassy spot where they shared cigars. Shared with bound wrists? Shared my ass. Samantha kept talking, but with other people around, Keyes told her nicely to shut up. Back in the truck, he realized the gas light was on. But for how long? Running out of gas with Samantha in his truck would not be good. So he got gas. Next, Israel texted Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne, saying she was very pissed off. And then he pulled the battery out so the cell phone couldn't be tracked, as was his method. By midnight, he was home. And while freezing cold, people were out walking their dogs. Leaving Samantha in the truck with his usual warning, he worked to reattach his lumber rack onto the truck. What happened next, Feldis prompted. Keys paused, quote, these are things I've never spoken of before. End quote. He'd prepared the shed in advance. Blindfolding Samantha, he tied her, promising to make her comfortable. If he heard reports of screaming on his scanner, he'd be back before the cops arrived. Turning the radio up loud, he recalled, quote, she was very cooperative. She didn't seem like she was going to try anything. End quote. He went inside where Kimberly was now sleeping. He ran the Koenig address he'd gotten from Samantha on MapQuest. Time check. He realized he had to leave for the cruise in two and a half hours. Parked three blocks away from the Koenig home, Israel Keys used Samantha's key to get into her truck. Quote, I was just locking up the truck and some guy came out and obviously knew something was up right away. End quote. Dwayne. Staring at each other, Keys waited to see what Dwayne would do, hand resting on his knife. 
Suddenly, Dwayne turned and went back inside. With Samantha's ATM card and license, he sprinted down the street, hiding. No one pursued, so he jumped in the car and took off to the bank. He'd forgotten to write down the PIN number Samantha gave him, so he went back to the shed to get it, risking exposure for the 13th time that night. So let's review. One, at the kiosk. Two, the Tudor Road escape attempt. Three, the IHOP parking lot. Four, cops in a patrol car. Five, Lanary Park witnesses. Six, the skiers. Seven, the gas station. Eight and nine, two trips back to the kiosk. Ten, Earthquake Park. Eleven, at his house, taking Samantha out of the truck to the shed. Twelve, Dwayne. And now this. Murder bookies, I am not reviewing this to point out that Samantha was dumb. There's no victim bashing going on here. But I am pointing out moments of opportunity for your mind's eye to identify. God forbid you are jumped or kidnapped. Look for opportunities you may have to save yourself. And with all of this effort to get to the ATM, Samantha's account had 94 cents in it. Keys returned home. So the team wanted to make sure they understood. So without leaving evidence, Keys now did something to Samantha, showered, changed his clothes, woke his daughter, fed her breakfast, double-checked on her packing for a two-week trip, got to the airport while chatting with his girlfriend, who was none the wiser. With a laugh, Keys said, quote, yeah, I was running late, end quote. He was asked, where was Samantha? In the shed. Was she alive? Yes, but he'd save that story for later. And unfortunately, so will I. That is it for episode 46, Killer Thaw, American Predator by Maureen Callahan, part one. Now the story continues in episode 47, Meticulous Methods, and terrifying title to choose for this. Who is Keys? Where is Samantha? Check it out in two weeks. And my choice for our next book is A Death in White Bear Lake by Barry Siegel. In 1962, Jerry Sherwood gave up her newborn son, Dennis, for adoption. 20 years later, she set out to find him, only to discover he had died before his fourth birthday. What happened to the little boy Jerry never forgot? Jerry begins asking questions, which unlocks a 20-year secret wrapped in apathy and silence. I could not do this story. It is so important. Do not miss this one. Thank you for listening. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, and shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I really do enjoy hearing from you. And until next time, murder bookies, happy reading and trust your gut. Source material, snack, food, drink information for the American Predator Trilogy is found on my blog too. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosanna and lyrics by Otto Harbach.